Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is David Sedaris, whose latest book is Happy Go Lucky. Earlier books include A Carnival of Snackery, The Best of Me, Calypso, Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls. According to this book, this is the 13th book. Yeah, it's a Lucky number. So I understand just before I turned on the recorder here, and we are at Book Passage Bookstore in Corte Madera doing live face-to-face. We are not wearing masks. But David had, you had COVID three weeks ago, right? Yeah, I got COVID. I, I got it in Alaska, apparently. And uh, then I brought it back with me to New York. I, I was on a 42-city lecture tour. And so... Um, anyway, must got it in Juneau or Skagway. And then I got back to New York and I took a test. And But I I knew I was a little tired, but I thought it was because I'd finished a tour. Anyway, for me, it was just like a minor cold. But you were boosted, right? Yeah, boosted and vaccinated. You know, I don't know what it would have been like had I not been, but the way things were, you know, wasn't so bad. And I know I can get it again, but I don't think I can get it again like this soon. Yeah, so you're pretty much protected at least for the next month. I feel like it. Right. Uh, you told me just before we I turned this on that um, your book, Happy Go Lucky, is going to premiere at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And you also told me why it makes you very, very happy. Well, the thing is, it's, I know it's different for the fiction list, but for the nonfiction list, so often it's not even a real writer who wrote the book, right? It's as told to, or sometimes they credit the ghost writers, sometimes they don't. But if I weren't number one, Kellyanne Conway would be. So it means a lot to me that somebody, her publicist, I'm sure, called her the exact moment that my publicist called me. But my publicist called with good news and hers called with not so good news, which that makes me feel good. And Bill O'Reilly was another person who I just would have hurt, right? Like if I had been number four or number three and Bill O'Reilly and Kellyanne Conway were above me, just because I don't, maybe Bill O'Reilly writes his books. I don't know. But see, and then you got to start thinking this way, right? Because Father's Day is coming. Now, People don't buy my book for Father's Day, you know, unless their dad is gay, you know. But I think they would buy Kellyanne Conway or Bill O'Reilly's book for their fathers. So now I got to start thinking this way, right? I got to, everyone who has a book out now, I'm sorry, is my enemy. You know, they're, (laughs) that's the way it goes when, you know, when your book comes out, if you're, you know, if you're vying for your position on the list or you're hoping to stay on the list. So well, how do you feel? I mean, as my friend Sharon are walking up to the bookstore, uh, this big sign with your name on it and all that, which you expect. But the reading you're giving is sold out. And there's a separate signing where people just sign f- to get signed. And I suddenly thought, wow, David's really successful. How does that impact your brain? Mm, well, I mean, I think it's one thing to, I mean, I think it's one thing, let's say, to be number one in the New York Times bestseller list, and it's another thing to think you deserve it, you know? So, I mean, we're sitting here in this room, and there are stacks of books, and I would guess that 80% of the books are better than mine, you know? So, and I've, I've been on this tour with a former student of mine named Cindy House, and her first book, Mother Noise, just came out. So it's interesting to be on tour with her, and then it just makes me realize how lucky I've been, you know, because when you're lucky from the start, which pretty much I was, then you think, oh, that's everybody's story, you know? Everybody goes on their very first book tour, 
and the room is full of people. But that's actually not the case. Most people, they go on their very first book tour and there's only the people who work in the bookstore, you know, filling out the seats and, and there's five people and it's really awful and humiliating. And because of the radio, um, you know, I was able to avoid that bit. And and then once you have a name for yourself, you know, your books get reviewed and you invite it on television and you do podcasts and, you know, but if you're, it's your very first book, it's just really hard to get somebody to pay attention to you. And there are all sorts of people out there who wrote amazing books and we don't, you know, we don't necessarily hear about them. Well, I've written two books that didn't get published, and so even if I talk to anyone who was managed to get published by a major publisher, no matter what, I'm thinking, I know what they put into it, and it's going to probably, next month, it's going to be vanished. Nobody will know about it. Well, the thing, because I go on these lecture tours, right, so I have a lecture agent, and a lecture tour takes place in theaters. So last month, I was at, uh, I was in Berkeley at the... uh, well, what is it? Some uh, gosh, it's right on the nip, tip of my tongue. The hall. Um, Zellerbach. No. Yeah, Zellerbach. Yeah, okay. and I was at the Opera House in San Francisco last fall, and the Zellerbach in the spring. So there's always a book signing afterwards. So I'm selling my books all the time, but and I think that you know, of course, that helps that I'm constantly doing book signings. Right. Yeah. On these tours, I mean, at the beginning, when you first went out. And you see all these people and their fans. I mean, I know that occasionally, not not often because it's a local show and even though I'm on a podcast, occasionally I meet someone who knows who I am. And it kind of freaks me out and I run away. You're good with that. How come? It's all I ever wanted. Really? All I ever wanted, all I ever wanted was to walk into a room and hear someone whisper, I think that's him. I think that's David. It doesn't have to be a room full of people saying it. would just be one or two. But if I'm on a plane and somebody comes down the aisle and they say, oh, I just want you to know I really love your books. I'm so touched and I'm, I, it makes me so happy. It's never been a problem. And I can't imagine, um, you know, this guy came up to me in Central Park a few weeks ago and said, Oh, I love your books. And I said, oh, that's great. He said, let's get a selfie. And then I said, mm, because you never look good in a selfie, you know, and I, and, and I said, oh, I don't think we need to do that. You know, I don't know that we need to go that far. And then he proceeded and I said, oh, no, that's okay. I said, we can just meet each other and, you know, we can just talk, but we don't, we don't need to. So every now and then it's somebody and they're really insistent on that. And I could see how I might leave and they'd be like, that guy's a dick. You know, he wouldn't take a selfie with me, but I'm 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 still friendly and I'm willing to talk and I'm willing to sign something if you want me to or you know I just not big for selfies. I'll say hand your camera to that person over there. Right, yeah. And then they can take the picture. But a lot of people are afraid to do that. You know, especially if you're in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> well, you may not get the camera or you may not get the phone back. But let's talk a little about happy go lucky and get away from this but not completely the focus in the book is mostly on your family, uh, your dad in particular, who passed, died, (laughs) I'm not going to say passed away, who died, that shows you I read the book, during the period that you're writing about. And it's also about your life during the pandemic, when you wandered the streets of New York and just judging by how you write about it, because I was out here, it almost felt post-apocalyptic when you were wandering the streets and nobody was there. Is that sort of how you felt? Well, I live on the Upper East Side, so everyone on the Upper East Side was gone. I mean, because all those people have second homes, so they, they were gone. And a lot of people throughout the city left, right? And and it really made you notice a, a lot of the people who were left were mentally ill or were homeless. I mean, I saw a guy shooting up heroin on Fifth Avenue, on Fifth Avenue, like not lower Fifth Avenue, but you know, but where the fancy stores are, because there were no, there were no tourists and there were no office workers. And it just, it did, it did feel post-apocalyptic. There were a lot of really uh, sick people 
out. You know, there are a lot of stories about people being hit over the head with hammers and people hitting over the being hit over the head with bricks and cinder blocks, and a record number of people were pushed in front of trains. Um, and and it, and again, normally there are a lot of other people on the street, so you don't notice it that much. But here it was pretty stark, and it felt. It all the reasons for living in New York City, like all the reasons, like you'd say, oh, there are book readings and there are, there's a ballet and there's a symphony. All the all of that was gone. All the reasons for living in New York were gone. But you weren't gone. You know, you were still there. And then when the Black Lives Matter protests happened, that gave the city a different flavor as well, because then there were people around, but they were really mad. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, you talk about that in one of your essays, which I wrote down here, but that means I have to read my own oh, writing. Fresh Caught Haddock, it was called. Right. Uh, and you just kind of joined them as part of it and also just to be part of the crowd. Well, you know what it was? I mean, when you watch television, you got one story, but when you actually went out on the street, it was a lot of young white people offering you snacks. I mean, I called them snacktivists, but they would say, do you need some potato chips? Do you need some pretzels? Can I give you some dried fruit to get your blood sugar up? Do you want a water? Do you need some a hand sanitizer? You know, they were just, they were organizing and organized to keep keep everyone's energy level up. And And I came to think of the protests, the way I thought of buses and subways, you know, when I would think, I'll just catch this BLM downtown, because you could walk, the people were friendly, and there were a lot of snacks, and you could walk in the middle of the avenue, which was nice, you know, to be able to do that, and and they were inescapable. I mean, I'd been in Hong Kong just at the start of the pandemic, and all those pro-democracy demonstrations, I was shocked to learn that if you lived in certain parts of town, you could know nothing about them. But that was not the case with the marches in New York City. Well, I guess if you lived in Queens, you might not go. You might not see They were everywhere. They They were were. really everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Around here, they were just in certain places. But I do remember going on my bicycle fairly early on. And there was like a, a group of about 40 people who would wander from one location to another. And just stop and wave at the at the traffic as it walked by, and I joined them here and there. I don't think anyone offered me snacks though, but you know that's the East Bay, slightly different world. But it was uh yeah, it was uh it was re- that was remarkable to me the number of snacks that were distributed in New York during that period. Were you heading at all down to the house in North Carolina? Yeah, we went down to North Carolina. And it was interesting because in North Carolina, it was just thought, in the eastern North Carolina, you know, everyone was willing to tell you. I got a friend who's a doctor, and he told me that doctors are just keeping the cases up because they get more money. If they say that they, and doctors and nurses, they get paid more. If they say something's COVID, so a lot, a lot of times they're just saying a cold, it's a cold, but they're calling it COVID. So, and everybody, it was it was very different from being in New York City, where you had to wear a mask all the time, and you had to wear a mask on the street. And if you went on the street in the daytime and you didn't have a mask on, people would jump all over you. And uh, that was another thing. You know, I thought I hated wearing a mask, you know, just because when you wear glasses, it fogs up your glasses. So, but I, th- I thought there's something I don't mind about this. What is it? And then I realized it was the first time in my adult life that I wasn't judged for my teeth, you know, because my teeth, I have like big gaps between my top teeth. And uh, and so when dentist offices reopened, I got braces. And it made a huge difference to me, you know. When you're over a certain age, you know, you're kind of invisible. I, I understand that. So... When you think people are noticing this or that, you know, you're usually wrong because right, once yeah. your hair is gray that, you know, you're you're a ghost. But I noticed, you know, throughout my adult life, you know, in different situations, like if I were going to a nice hotel, say, and my credit card didn't work and, uh, you know, to pay for my incidentals or whatever, 
I knew they would look at my teeth and they would think, ah, oh, he's trying to, you know, trying to scam us. I, I know it for a fact. Anyway, and so now all I ever wanted was that someone would say, what were his teeth like? And you would say, I don't know. That's all I ever wanted, unremarkable <laughs> teeth. And so I fixed that problem during the pandemic, and it was amazing to me. Well, I stopped dyeing my hair, and you you think it looks okay. I think it looks fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Forty years I dyed my hair. Wow. And well, it started in my late 30s. I think it was 39, and it just kept going. And the other thing I noticed is it got thicker when I dyed it. And so I was afraid huh. that if I stopped, you could see to the back of my head. But you can't. No. So it worked. But see, I think I think that white hair on a young person looks fantastic. You know, like if somebody's 40 with white hair, that looks great. Yeah, but you know? I'm not. <laughs> no, but you were, and you were dying it. Right, but, yeah. <laughs> but now, I mean. But it doesn't make you look any older than you did. Right. You know, like I, I would never think, oh, he's aged. I, I thought, wow, that looks great, that hair color. Well, thank you, David Sedaris. Uh, let, let's, and, and I can, oh, wow. I just saw your teeth. Fen wow. Because I remember your teeth not, I'm going, he's rich. Why are his teeth look like that? Right. But they would, I got those invisible braces. Like Tom Cruise had. Uh, I, I don't know, but they're invis they're called Invisalign's. Yeah. I wore them 14 weeks. That's all. And they're just like wearing a thing at night, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you wear them 23 hours a day. Yeah, but it's and the same thing. And now I wear a retainer at night. Yeah. But pe they're invisible. People can't even tell you have them in. Did it change your speaking at all? Uh, I don't know. Because sometimes I think I lisp now more than I did. But I think it depends on the day, you know? Yeah. Like sometimes I listen to a recording of myself and I sound lispier than others. And I'm not crazy about the lisp. But the problem is I travel so often. That I wouldn't mind going to a, you know, trying, trying again, going to a speech therapist. But it's, at, at a certain point, though, it's sort of, you're well known enough, so it's the David Sedaris thing, mm. that there's a slight lisp. So mm. to get rid of it, it's sort of like someone getting a facelift and looking like someone else. Oh, I mean, so I, I would say don't. Huh. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, I saw a, Christa, a picture of Kristen Chenoweth, and she'd had the full thing done. I'm going, oh, my God, look at her now. She looks like a person with a facelift. And I'm thinking, for someone whose voice is important, you don't want to do that. You want to keep your own voice. Huh. You want to sound like David Sedaris. I feel that way. You know, I feel like all men who, like men who get their eyes done, they all look related. You know, they all right, look yeah, like exactly. pixies, but they all look like brothers who live <laughs> in the forest. Yeah, so it's a good reason not to get anything done, yeah. I think. <laughs> well, David Sedaris, let's get back to the book, which we keep going away from. Happy Go Lucky. When I was writing down the con, I, I decided, I read the book quickly, and I noticed a big gap between the content of the essays and the titles of the essays. Huh. How did you come up with the titles and did you pay much attention to the titles? Oh, gosh. Well, I think some of the titles are pretty great. Um, usually, my editor at The New Yorker, like if it's a bad title, my editor at The New Yorker, they're really good at coming up with titles there. And I don't like to leave it to them, but every now and then I leave it to my editor and I think, wow, she did a great job. I don't like, I've got a couple of one-word titles, and I generally don't like those for a an essay. But like if I look at Bruised, uh, that works on so many levels, which is what you want. Hurricane season, to me, works on a number oh, of that levels. One does, yeah. um, Pearls works on a number of different levels. Lady Marmalade works. Pussy Toes, that's a one-word title, but it's such a good word that I'm pretty happy. To Serve You With Love might be a little bit too punny, you know, like a title of, you'd see in a magazine. I don't know. I'm, I think I'm okay with, uh, I think I'm okay with them. You know, like every now and then somebody gives you a title for something they're doing and you think, nah, that's not going to work, you know. So I don't feel, yeah, I don't feel awful about the titles. And I'd say the majority I feel pretty good about. One thing I noticed you do, which I don't know how conscious it is, 
But there's a tendency in books about things that are happening right now, there's a tendency to either go one direction, which is that five years from now, you can still talk about them because the topicality has been removed. And the other side of it is you make it so topical that it becomes mm -hmm. impossible five years later. Maybe 20 years right. later, it's history. And I find that when I go back and edit older interviews, re-edit, that some interviews with great authors I can't use again because it's all topicality mm -hmm. about Bill Clinton, for right. example. You know, What you do here is you zap around to such a degree going from 30 years ago to the present to 10 years ago that the topicality doesn't disappear. It can't, I mean, a year from now or five, it'll be just as good because you've put it in a context. Is that, is that conscious? Well, you know, I'd like to think that's true, but there's an essay I wrote called Lucky Go Happy, right? And it was about the United States in the autumn of 2021, just what the country felt like to me. And I read it at the beginning of my spring tour. By the end of my spring tour, it felt like it was too late to read it anymore. Really? Yeah, because the mask mandates had changed and they had been dropped and you didn't have to wear masks on the airplane anymore. And it just felt like ancient history, even though the mandate had been dropped only two weeks earlier. And that was really surprising to me. Uh, and, and it was embarrassing to me, too. And then I thought, well, maybe in a couple of years... You know, it'll work because people, there'll be a number of things that people forgot what certain things were like, maybe. Because it, it's funny how quickly, like the second that you didn't have to wear masks on airplanes anymore, I forgot about all those daily fights that I would see on airplanes. Every day there was a fight because the campaign, the mask turned into a campaign button. Right. And it's not good to know at a distance of 30 feet who somebody voted for. Right. You know that feeling when you're at the airport and you smile at somebody and then you notice a little pin on their jacket and you think, oh, no, that's a Donald Trump supporter. And I just smiled at that person. I don't I don't like I don't I, I don't know. I think we were much better off when we didn't know then that was when that wasn't the first thing we knew about somebody. And so we didn't feel we were in enemy territory. Or we didn't feel, because you know what? There are people who voted for Donald Trump who are nice people. You know, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, certainly would not vote the way that they voted, but they're kind and they can be funny and they can be interesting and they can be, you know, it's just, we have this churning, this, this, you know, my father at the end of his life, my father was like a massive dick and he developed dementia toward the end of his life and he forgot that he was a massive dick and he became this great person for a couple of weeks. And one of the things, you know, the, the, the tele, he, for years, my father had Fox News on all the time, right? And Rush Limbaugh. But the television at his assisted living center was too complicated for him. And so he didn't watch Fox News and he wasn't being constantly enraged all the time. And that was part of what made him so easy to get along with. And after the last election, I stopped too. I stopped. I don't know. I let it all go. I stopped. You know, I read the newspaper, but it's like, I don't want to, if they track me, you know, what I click on in the New York Times, it's real estate. You know? <laughs> I was chatting with this is going to be in a little bit of an aside. I have a friend in L.A., and we text from time to time. He's my old theater partner. So we started talking about Hades Town, which I saw last night, which is a great show. And then I mentioned that I'd be talking to you today. And he said that he is really kind of freaked out and upset by the rise of fascism in America as a whole, that he sometimes feels that people he called A-list gays, and again, this is his, not me. Sure. Uh, and he mentioned your name. He mentioned uh, Anderson Cooper, and he mentioned a third name that I don't remember right now. He said, 
maybe they feel they're in an ivory tower or something and don't realize how bad this is getting and how their own rights are in danger. And I said, I'll ask David. I don't understand quite how bad. Yeah, that, that, <clears throat> that when I look at a book like this, mm -hmm. your politics are clear, but at the same time, as you say, well, there are nice people who are Trump supporters, who are, who are Republicans. And his sister is a very nice person, and she's a Republican. She lives in northern Idaho, and she can't talk her politics because she's got a lot of liberal streaks in her, including a gay brother. And I said, well, what about if you ask her a question, which is, what do you call a member of the Nazi party who said they didn't support Hitler, Hitler's policies? The answer is, call him a Nazi. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, even these nice, sweet Republicans, they're still, and Trump supporters, they're still those people, even if they're nice. Yeah, but there also are brothers and sisters, and there are parents, and I don't... I don't, I'm not going to end my relationship with my brother because he voted different than I did. I'm not going to do it. I don't see how that helps anybody. And I don't see how it helps for me to say to my brother, um, I, if my brother were in need for me to say to him, I'm not going to help you until you renounce, because he's not going to renounce you know, what he believes in. And I, I don't I don't think that's how you change people's hearts and minds. I, you know, I got to say for all of the, you know, I don't know that anybody did more for gay people than Ellen DeGeneres. You know what I mean? Like when she started her TV show and there were a lot of people who thought they don't know it. They didn't know any lesbians. They didn't know, but there was that woman on TV and they liked her pretty much. And she didn't get up in people's faces, you know. She just, she made herself, and she made gay people real to a lot of people who didn't know that they were living amongst them, you know. So I don't, um, I don't, I don't, I don't, that's not the way I want to, you know, every now and then somebody will come up to get a book signed and they'll say, you know what, I'm a, I'm a cop, you know, I'm a police officer and uh, I love your books, you know. I don't vote the way you do, but damn, I like your books. And that makes me feel great, you know? I don't... Let, let me say, let me, let me add that I think what he, where he was coming from. Yeah, I've been criticized sometimes for not being political enough in my interviews. Where he's coming from is a fear that stems from all of the anti-trans publicity and don't say gay from DeSantis, you know, Alito's draft and all that. He's terrified of the future. And maybe he's just saying we all have to speak up and those with louder voices should be speaking louder. But I don't know. I mean, the fact that you're gay appears everywhere in this book. I don't know what else can be done, but I've just... I'm going to edit this out. I'm just talking too often, but... No, you're not. Um, no, I know... I don't know. I, I guess I look... I I look at it and I think if I were to try to, you know, persuade people, it's not the... It's the Ellen way, I suppose, you know? To let, you know, to have people think like, well, there's him and I do like him. I don't know, the same way that, I, don't, I just don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's healthy to think that anyone who's different from you wants to destroy you and wants to destroy your way of life. I, I just don't think that's a way to go about it. I don't think it's good to to walk down your street that way. I don't think it's good to, now granted, there are people out there who are like, let's say, members of the Proud Boys, but there aren't that many, you know, in the scheme of things. There are, and there are plenty of people who who would vote for 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 Lisa Murkowski who don't who are ashamed by those separatists and 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 but but 
Lisa Murkowski represents who they feel they are, you know, and I'm not, I'm so tired. I'm just tired of, I'm tired of the hate, you know, like I'm just tired of, I'm just ready to let all that go. I just, you know, I'm tired of getting mad at people who didn't get vaccinated. You know, I mean, I'm vaccinated, I'm boosted. And if somebody isn't, I'm, I don't, I, I, I don't think they're wise, but I'm not going to take a second out of my day to condemn them or to feel ill will toward them. I don't, I, I don't think that people, I think that people who sit at home and listen to MSNBC all day, I don't, I don't think they're any better than people who sit at home and listen to Fox News all day, you know? Um, and I, 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 I I see the country get more and more divided and I it just makes me so sad, you know? It makes me so, so sad to see that. And I I just think that it's I know it sounds very, you know, Pollyanna ish, but I don't know. I'm just kind of in the mood to sit down with somebody like that and then say, you know, oh my goodness, you like Thousand Pound Sisters? I like that show too. <laughs> One of the things that I found drawing people for years was I'm a baseball fan, the Oakland A's. Now, of course, I can join with all the Republicans in hating the owner. Everybody who's an A's fan hates these people that <laughs> we've joined together. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's kind of a nice thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd like to get back to a little bit lighter talking here. What was it like Fitbit walking during the pandemic? Well, I started going out at night because I felt like there was no one on the street at night after midnight, nobody. So I thought, well, I'm not going to wear a mask because there's nobody out. And so no one's going to condemn me for not wearing a mask. I mean, it's interesting to feel like you were, you know, you felt, felt completely like it was your own city, you know. But then I started having bad experiences, a couple of bad experiences, and I kind of scared me off that for a while. You know, I haven't, and lately I've been getting up like first thing in the morning and going out for a walk because then you can walk in the park. You're not going to walk in Central Park at two o'clock in the morning. But yeah, I just had a couple of bad experiences and one of them was worth writing about. So I welcome that one, you know, and the other one was just creepy and, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning in another essay, but it would not be its own standalone essay. But it's something I tried to write about. I tried to write about it, and it, the essay I wrote just wasn't working. Um, but it was about these run-ins that I had with people. But I think if I separate... Th this woman um, at, I don't know, I don't know, 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, just turned off of Park Avenue onto 72nd Street, and she was on a corner, and she said, I'm just finishing this joint. And it didn't smell like pot to me. Anyway... Then she said, how are you doing, baby? She said, you want some nice tight pussy? And then she reached and she grabbed my penis and said, give me some of that dick. And I freaked out, you know, and I said, I'm gay. And she said, I'll fuck you up the ass then. And then she was reached behind me and was like feeling for my anus. And it was like an octopus. And she was kissing me and she was everywhere at once. And and when I talk about it on stage, the audience howls, right? But then when I say at the end that can a I don't feel like a man can be sexually assaulted by a woman, right? And then, you know, there have been times when people say, yes, I can. And it's like, well, then you wouldn't have laughed. If if what I was describing, to if, if a woman told you that a man came up and grabbed her vagina and, and man, ha you know, had, was, had his hands all over her, you would not. And, and the audience howls when I tell this story. So I think that right there tells me something. But it it's a, what makes that good for an essay is that it you know it introduces that question you know can I I think the element of fear is has everything to do with it right I think if if a man sexually assaults a woman there's a real fear of penetration like if I were in prison and somebody right, said yeah. you know I'm going to fuck you up the ass I'd be like yikes and I would be terrified but if a woman who's smaller than me says, I'm going to fuck you up the ass. I'm just thinking, with what? You know? <laughs> that, by the way, will be on the podcast only. <laughs> I'm listening. I'm thinking, how many bleeps do I have? And then realized, no, I can't do this. 
I had a question that came out of that, which I completely forgot because I got caught up. So let me let me change the subject, and if I come back to it, I will. Uh, has Amy ever talked about what it was like working on The Mandalorian? Oh, yes, but she doesn't – it doesn't make any sense to her. The show doesn't make any sense to her, and the story is uninteresting to her. And I was running lines with her. She said, the, the lines don't make any sense. And I said, well, I'll help you. I'll, you know, run lines with you. And when, and she said, we must defeat tyranny. And I said, Amy, that's tyranny. She thought it was a character named tyranny <laughs> that they needed to defeat. So, But what's interesting about it is that for her – is that a lot of Star Wars people have really definite ideas, you know, about who should be in that role. And so they're very vocal if they don't think that she's right for that part. And, you know, and then other people are, are uh, you know, think that she's great in it. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fan base that's really vocal, you know. Did she ever talk about what it's like being on the set with, I assume, most of the set is just green screens? Oh, you know, that's funny. I never asked her about that. I know she had to wrestle with a, some kind of a creature once. And I don't remember. Gosh, but then, that's funny. I never asked her about the green screen thing. It's funny. I mean, Amy doesn't. It's like sometimes somebody will call and they'll say, oh, your sister's on such and such. And I'll say, Amy, why didn't you tell me? And she's like, I don't know. You know, she doesn't yeah, like to advertise Star those Wars. things. I know it. <laughs> I mean, this isn't like uh, that weird show where she wore too much lipstick on her face. You know, <laughs> this is Star Wars, and you know, it's a cultural icon. You know, a hundred years from now, there are two possibilities: either Amy Sedaris will be known as David Sedaris's sister. Or David Sedaris will be known as Amy Sedaris' brother because of Star Wars. We don't know. Right. And I'm perfectly fine being known as Amy's brother. You know. How, do, how does uh, Gretchen feel about the fact of having these two famous siblings? Uh, well, you know, it's hard. But it's hard because, you know, I mean, I know there have been times that people will come up to me and say, are you going to be in Mandalorian? And I say, why would I? Well, your sister is. And it's like, what does your sister do? You know, and they'll say, my sister sells insurance. And I said, why don't you sell insurance? Because your sister does. So you obviously must do what your sister does. But anyway, I've got my own thing going on. So it's easier for me, you know. But if I think it's been harder for our, our other brothers and sister, our brother and other sisters, you know, with people saying, like, when are you going to write a book? You know, why aren't you on TV? Why aren't you, you know, I, I think that's, you know, a lot of times it's just people think they're being funny and they don't understand how common they are. You know, that just that, that you know, my sisters hear this over and over and over again. And people think that they're being, again, they think they're being original and they're just not. How do they feel about being in your books? I always give it to them first, and I say, is there anything you want me to change or leave out? Um, you know, my brother doesn't want to be written about anymore. But, you know, one of the things with my brother is that people were saying, you know, they go up to him and say, do the rooster. You know, so an essay can kind of trap people in amber, you know. Right. And and my brother wants to grow, and he wants to do what everybody does. Do you know what I mean? He wants to grow out of one phase and pass through it and and become an adult. And it's when there's like an essay about you that is pretty well known, you're just, that's amber and you're trapped in it. And there's a certain kind of person who's not going to allow you to outgrow it. Now I remember the earlier question, which was when you were telling the story, which I can't put on the air, uh, but is in the podcast. The relationship between your Speaking engagements, which are used as kind of a testing ground for your essays, and actually putting them into print. What do you gain and what can't you gain from the audience reaction? Uh, what do I gain by the audience reaction? I, the audience tells me that when they would be skimming, you know, if it's on the page, like if I'm you know, there are any number of essays where I'm presenting, you have to present information, right? And the audience will start coughing 
and that means they've checked out, you know, and that they would be skimming if it were on the page. So I'll rewrite it and I'll take that information out and I'll distribute it in tiny little spoonfuls throughout the essay. And so it's not just in a block like that. And then people aren't coughing anymore. You know, it tells me when what people find funny. I can learn a lot by the quality of a silence. There are any number of different laughs, like there's one laugh that I've been getting lately, and it's a laugh that means I cannot believe you made me laugh at something that tasteless and that terrible. And I love that kind of laugh. Just love it. Uh, there's a shock laugh, you know, just that comes from a word that people didn't expect, right? Um, so I like to have a nice variety of those in there. But, and I like to learn as much as I can on my own. And then I give it to my editor at The New Yorker. And often my editor will say, you know, can we, I think we need to cut this. And I'll say, that's my biggest laugh in the whole story. At the same time, you know, one of the things that, it was a big laugh out loud. And my editor at The New Yorker, she's British, but anyway, she didn't get it, was I was talking about hurricane that destroyed our beach house in North Carolina. And I said that the hurricane gave new meaning to the word namaste on the North Carolina coast. Uh, and then I had, are you going to evacuate? Namaste. So out loud, namaste, you know, you know it's, no, I'm going to stay. Whereas on the page, I think you would have to say it out loud to yourself. But I wasn't going to get rid of it because it's gold. Namaste. <laughs> well, there's also the timing issue, and I've talked to writers, comedians who have to write, who write their own books rather than having a ghostwriter, and that's a problem too because timing when you're mm -hmm. on stage is everything, right. and then in a book, of course, how do you create timing right. that will have the same impact? Because you don't want to be, you don't want to, let's say, um put four double spaces and then the word, uh, what do you think? You know, the line, what do you think? Because it just looks gimmicky on the page and it looks unprofessional, right? So I work a lot with, uh, I mean, I that's very important to me on the page. You know, like if I were to say, um, I don't know, he said, that's different than he said, I don't know. Uh, I don't know, said he. Um, well, said he, I don't know that you would ever say that, but just the rearranging, putting he said at the beginning or the end of the sentence can, your whole laugh can depend on that sometimes, but I don't know what else I can do. Like, I feel like that I used to write so that I could read it out loud. And now I feel like I write so that anyone can read it out loud. I feel it's right there on the page, but that said, you know, there's a show called Selected Shorts where they read short stories on air, and then essays sometimes too. And they've done some of my stuff on there. And I wince, you know, I wince. And and the reason I wince is that they're so actorly with it, you know, and they're really over the top and broad. And I feel like you get more laughs not being that way. And then there's, you know, of Autumn, A-U-D-M? It's an audio service, and they have, let's say, you can choose from, let's say, I don't know, 30 or 40 publications, The Atlantic, Harper's, The New Yorker, New York Times Magazine, Mother Jones, and they read the the articles to you or the stories, right? And they've got, I don't know how many readers they've got on staff. I don't, um, I don't know. Let's say they've got 50 readers on staff, 40 readers on staff, and they're fantastic. Like Eduardo Bartolini is one of the readers, and Julia Whalen is one of the readers. And they're both people who have done a number of audiobooks who I really, really admire. Eduardo Ballerini read the last essay that I had in The New Yorker. He read it for Autumn. And they asked me for Happy Go Lucky. They, I used to do it myself, but then they said, um, Anyway, they, they said to me last time, is there somebody you would like to read this? And I said, oh, I'd love for Julia Whalen to read it. Even though it's first person for me, right? Yeah. Uh, I thought, why not have a woman read it? And both of them, they're amazing readers. And they don't, you know, they're both actors, but they're not, 
they're not hitting you in the ribs, like get a load of this, or isn't this funny, or giving people crazy accents, or giving people crazy, uh, uh, um, you know, that if, if let's say two people are talking, they sure one of them talks like this, you know, so you can tell he's different yeah. from the other person. So I really like it's such an honor to hear something I wrote read by those people. The same with um, I got um, Elaine Stritch did one of my audiobooks, and wow. to, and I don't think. She looked over the material before she got in the recording booth. Pretty sure she didn't. She still did a remarkable job, you know. And I'll have something I will have for the rest of my life is, and it's one of the best things I feel like I ever wrote. And it was, uh, it was in Squirrel Seeks Chipmunk, and it was about it was called the Cat and the Baboon, and she just did it was just what i imagined it was just how i wanted it read i would not have changed i would not have given her a single note it was sublime where, where can people find that oh sure like on the audiobook on uh you know on squirrel seeks chipmunk like on audible or on you know right. wherever right. audiobooks are on itunes or wherever they get it i got three other people to help me read on that it wasn't full cast. I don't like full cast audiobooks, but I read for the essays Sean Phillips, a British actress who yeah. I love. She read for the essays. Um, Dylan Baker read for the essays. Yeah, so we I just doled them out. And, and Elaine Strickland. And Elaine read four of them, yeah. Wow. And then my last audio, not this one, but I put out a book called uh, A Carnival of Snackery. And it was diary entries. And so for that, there were a lot of essays that Tracy Ullman read with me. But she read everything that took place in England or Ireland or Australia because she's so good at accents. She did those. Um, she read them. And again, it was so much fun to hear, you know, to hear your writing come out of the mouth of someone who you so admire. Did you get to meet Stritch? No, we talked on the phone a couple of times, and she, she, you know, she offered. She said, "When you come to New York, let's get together." But you know, and I'm, and I know she was genuine about it, but I was just so nervous. There was no way I could. I mean, that I could. One thing, doing what I'm doing is is I have an excuse. I turn on the microphone, so you know, I got, I got to hang out with um, in her apartment with the late Barbara Cook. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. She didn't sing for me, but we we talked, we did the interview for an hour, and then we hung out for another hour because her son came out of the closet, and so I was talking about my mom's reaction, and we talked about what it's like being a parent and a son when you first come out and how you deal with it and how she dealt with it and how her son dealt with it, and none of it was recorded because it was just our conversation, sure. but... I mean, we talked about that. We didn't talk about her her theater. That was all on the air. But I got to spend time with her, and she was remarkable. I was talking to someone who was slapped across the face by Elaine. Um, she had presented Elaine. She had presented the, her one-woman show in Arizona, and Elaine was a monster. And then Elaine was monstrous to my audiobook producer. That's that's, and, that's um, not Barbara Cook for sure. Yeah, but but she, and she was lovely to me. You know, but then again, you know, if you're a if you're an actor and you're talking to a writer who could potentially write something for you, you know, you're going to be charming and stuff. Where, right, yeah. well, I did interview Stephen Sondheim a couple of times, and he was not charming. Oh, he wasn't. No, but it's weird. The first time he turned me into a it was in San Francisco, and he hadn't slept all night. He just gotten in on a plane, and we did it in his. Um, uh, hotel room and he was in a terrible mood and I walked out of there thinking that you know because he was my idol that I would basically have to jump off a bridge mm -hmm. a friend of mine who had had some dealings with him talked me down and I edited it and years later after he died I re-listened to it and he was brilliant 
Hmm. He was absolutely brilliant. And I didn't get that. I did a second one with him at his townhouse in New York and met his dogs. And I said, so this time, a year later, you're in a better mood. He said, no. Just before the pandemic, I was elected into the American Academy of Arts and Letters, which is like being invited onto Mount Olympus, right? So they have right. these luncheons and you go, there are these people, you know, like there's, you know, like Stephen Sondheim was a member. Joan Didion was a member. Oh my goodness. Terrence McNally. You know, I met him at an academy meeting. I went to dinner a while ago and I sat between Calvin Trillin and Garrison Keillor. You know, just dinner and you just keep pinching yourself and you think, wow, how is it possible? And then you go, like they have the books of all the members and there's like a whole shelf. Truman Capote, you know, has a whole shelf there. And then you think, okay, I get that, but... How is it that I have a... Do you know I mean? Like, obviously, some horrible mistake was made, you know, on their part. How can it be that Willa Cather has a shelf and then I have a shelf, you know, as well? Uh, but it's been interesting to... Like, I remember I went to my first... When I was inducted, there was a luncheon. And then Joyce Carol Oates comes by and says, I just want to welcome you. You know, I just want to say how happy we are to have you and you know, so glad that you're here. And my numbers, you know, like they give you out of directory and people are like, oh, call me. And then you're thinking, I can't call Joyce Carol Oates. You know, I can't do that. I'm not going to try to top you because I can't. But KPFA did a dinner in 1990 and I had Gore Vidal on one side of me, Barbara Ehrenreich on the other, and I was facing Molly Ivins. Wow. Wow. Gore Vidal. What was that like? I'd be terrified of Gore Vidal. I interviewed him huh. about three or four times. The last time was at KPFA. He was in a wheelchair. And the first time I interviewed him, we talked. And uh, it actually, was at the dinner because I interviewed him the next day. And he said, Richard, I think you understand me. But the last time I saw him, he was in a wheelchair downstairs. I was walking down the stairs. And he saw me before I saw him. But then I noticed his face lit up when he saw me. And then as he saw that I saw him, probably one of the greatest single moments I can experience. Hmm. Later on, I said to him, so you were on tour for this book? And he said, no, I came up here to talk to you and to Philip Mulberry. <laughs> it was like, okay, <laughs> that works for me. But he was also the best um, name dropper because the two of us have now been dropping names because I said to him, I was telling him about my hearing aids. I'd just gotten the new ones since 2006. And he said, and I began explaining my problems. And he just looked at me and he said, Mick Jagger was telling me the same thing the other day. <laughs> <laughs> David Sedaris, your essay on jokes was great. You know, I've heard so much better jokes since then. It's like, <laughs> God damn it. I wish I'd put those new ones in there. <laughs> They were great. The dad issue stuff, was that difficult for you to write looking back after your dad died at your conflicted feelings? Um, no. I mean, I know it'll be interesting when, you know, I know that I'll feel differently five or 10 years from now, but maybe not. I mean, my father was, uh, you know, he wasn't, uh, he was like not, a. You know, he was an underminer, you know. I mean, he worked his whole life to undermine me. So I can't imagine missing my father. I mean, I, I never wanted to be the person who wasn't talking to a parent. I didn't want to be estranged because I think that I know that for some people it's what they have to do um, for their own sanity, but I didn't want to be that person. But I also didn't, you know, after a point, I wasn't going to put myself through his presence anymore than I had to. You know, I mean, gee, I just, like I remember going to North Carolina. First of all, I'd go home and he's going to pick me up at the airport. And then there would be no one at the airport. And then I would call and he would answer the phone. I, didn't I tell you that I was coming in? At I'm on my I'm coming. And then you call half an hour later and he answers the phone again. He's still at home. And you hear the golf game on the television. 
And you're thinking, and I remember when I was in college, I would think like, one day I'm just going to get back on that airplane and I'm going to leave. You know, I'm not going to. And so that would just be the start of it. And then you look terrible. You look awful. You know, stand up straight. Why did you do this? You know, nobody wants to. And it was just, and I had my own thing going on, you know, like, so he he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to affect, he wasn't going to affect, like, he couldn't, he couldn't plant the doubt that he wanted to plant. Like, I wouldn't think, oh my God, that book is awful. You know, coming, he couldn't do that. It was just the fact that he was still trying, you know, that he never gave up was, and then when he died, he had planted these little bombs, you know. Oh, the, uh, you're out of my will. Yeah, out of the will, but then also, you know, when I graduated from college, I remember he gave me an IRA, and, you know, you're in debt, you're broke, because you just paid yourself for yourself to go through college. Why can't I have the money? No, you're going to be grateful one day. And we talked about it on and on throughout the years. He never set it up. You know, just a lot of things like that, just that, um, you know, he had it in his will that I was entitled to any boats or cars that he had. We, we're not boat people. I don't know where the boat thing came from. And then I never learned to drive a car. But my father had a pristine 1964 Porsche Target, Targa, that he made sure that he sold a couple of years before he died just so I wouldn't get it. And again, I don't drive, you know. But he made sure that you wouldn't get it. Yeah, yeah. He just made sure I wouldn't get uh, anything. And, and again, it was just, what was weird is that you would think that somebody that mean would be direct, but not at all. You know, like my father, I never, I don't, I never understood what it was that I did. I never understood, you know, if somebody were to say like, look, you really hurt me and I don't know that I can get over it because you did such and such to me and that really hurt me. That's different than somebody acting like everything's fine when I was a boy, I would think like, maybe if I do this and maybe if I do that. I did the same and thing. And so you twist yourself up in knots and you do all the, you go to scouts and you join the track team and you're thinking and you join the swim team and, you know, you join the swim team. I mean, there was an essay I wrote a number of years ago. There was this kid on the swim team named Greg Sackis. And then my dad's like, God, that Greg Sackis. Did you see him? Greg Sackis, Greg Sackis, Greg Sackis. You know, like he wouldn't shut up about Greg Sackis. And... I remember thinking, God, he wants Greg to be his son. What can I do? Like make myself more like Greg. And anyway, I wrote this essay about it in the New Yorker, and they tracked down Greg Sackis. The fact checkers did, and he was running a sex toy shop called um, Pandora's Box. <laughs> did you tell your father that? Yes, I did, because he always he always bet on the wrong people. You know, but one thing my father felt confident about that is that I would be a failure confident he bet all his chips on me being a failure everything you know and it didn't work out that way and it meant that he could have been wrong about a lot of other things too I guess that's the thing too I think when you die you know if you leave a couple million dollars to somebody they'll say you know he was a dick but he could be pretty great you know but he didn't leave $2 million. He left it to everybody but you. It's like, no, he's a dick. You know, like, it's, you're never going to add the second part of that uh, <laughs> of that sentence. I think we've run out of time because you want to get some signings in. Oh, God, I was going to ask you about the citizen firing. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. My friend, my friend in L.A., my friend in L.A. said, there was some kerfluffle with him a while back. And I said, I didn't know about that. And he said that you done this thing online, a video about citizen firing that turned into you being against the service industry or something. Oh my God. I, um, I'm a commentator on CBS Sunday morning. So, and I can talk about whatever I want and I've got a page and a half to do it. So I talked about my idea for the citizen's dismissal. And that's when you meet someone who is so bad at their job. It's just this fantasy that you would get to fire them. It's like a citizen's arrest, right? And I talked about 10 years ago, my sister Amy and I went to this gallery in London to buy this pottery. These cups and saucers made by this woman in her 90s, right? Very delicate. 
So we buy them. Amy gives the woman a credit card, $600 worth of pottery. The woman says, oh, your credit card won't work. And I said, mm, if you turn it around, it'll work. And so she turned the card around and it worked. She gave Amy the receipt and then she just folded her arms. And she said, we don't have any bubble wrap or bags or anything like that. And I said, so we're supposed to just carry them on the bus home like this? Well, they're years. You bought them. And to me, that's really bad. Like, she's really bad at her job, you know? Now, I did not say to her, uh, I'm going to try to get you fired. I did not write an ugly letter to the business. I did not... Amy and I were both too shocked to say anything. My feeling is, if I were her, I would have said, we don't have any bubble wrap or bags, but I am wearing underpants. And I've got some socks on. Let's see what we can do. That's what I would have done. Or I would have said, can you stay here? Let me run down the street, buy a newspaper. I would have, I would have, I would have done something, right? And then it came out on Twitter that I was trying to fire essential workers during the pandemic. And the first thing is, that happened 10 years ago. And I didn't fire the woman. I didn't say, I just... But it's one of those things, like, I guess CBS put the transcript on their website, but it's a page and a half long, so that's too long. No one's going to read that. So it was just a tidal wave of tweets, which I didn't read any of them. I mean, my publicist told me about it, and I thought, I thought, uh, well, they'll turn on somebody else, you know, by the time the sun sets, and they did. But it wasn't even for anything that I had done or said. I mean, nobody should have to... I'm talking about people who are super bad at their jobs, and we all know what that's like. We all we all have had dealings with that person, you know, and, and, I, and I think... I think who doesn't notice that? Well, my thought in reading the article that he that he sent me via text, that the quote about the underpants and the socks was included, and the woman arguing against it said, he said that semi-seriously, and I'm thinking, or semi-jokingly, I'm thinking, no, he said it jokingly. Yeah. He said it jokingly. And it struck me that the problem with social media as a whole and the internet as a whole is nothing is ever funny. <laughs> nothing can ever be taken as funny. But how could anyone, okay, like who would want somebody to take their underpants off and <laughs> wrap a coffee cup? I mean, it wasn't, I mean, it, but, and I'm thinking, right, how can somebody not see that that's a joke? I can't help that person who doesn't think that that's a joke. There's nothing I can do like there's something that I just wrote that they're editing right now. And I had written that I I was in Central Park and this child said to a woman I assumed was her nanny, look, those two birds are friends. Magazine came back. Um, Can we edit that out? Because that's racially very problematic. You know, that you would assume that somebody was with a nanny. You know, and that could be because of racial reasons. And so we just like to get rid of that. We'd like to edit that out. And anyone who's lived in New York City, you, there's any number of reasons why you would assume that somebody is a nanny. You know, maybe the child is six years old and she's with a 20-year-old with a Swedish accent. You know, that's a pretty good indication that somebody's a nanny. You know, if it's a white child with blonde hair with a Filipino woman okay, who's doesn't look like she lives on Park Avenue, you know, who's not dressed like a park, you know, uh, like she right. lives on Park Avenue or Fifth Avenue. You know, there are any number of reasons. We all, we all make these assumptions every day. I didn't color in the situation. I just said it was a woman, a little girl speaking to a woman I assumed was her nanny. It can be, you can see an emotional uh, distance between a parent and the older person. There are any number of reasons why. And I said, you know, if I change, if if I cut that out for some imagined person who's going to take offense at it, they're just going to take offense on the next paragraph or the one after that. You know, so I, I'm not going to edit for somebody who just is offended by everything because you you, you can't even predict what they're going to be offended by. I mean, 
later on in the essay I sign in somebody's book, go back to Whore Island. I think that same person's going to be offended by that. David Sedaris, we've come to the end because we've run out of time. You've got happy-go-lucky. How close are you to your next batch of essays? Oh, gee, I've only written like three new essays since I turned the book in, so I'm a good distance away from it. You've been listening to an interview with David Sedaris, whose latest book is Happy Go Lucky. Special thanks to Elaine Petricelli and Book Passage, where this interview was recorded. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>